0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of Rock and Roll History, the podcast where we stage dive head first into all the hits, misses, and often overlooked songs and stories throughout the history of rock and roll. I'm your host, Elmo. But who cares? Come on, everybody, let's go rock and roll! Before we get going today, just want to say that I hope you're doing well and have been washing your hands and practicing good hygiene. We will all be okay, and we'll get through this together. No worries. Just hang in there, folks. In the meantime, since we'll all be staying in and all the fun events have been canceled, uh, well, that just gives us more time to listen to podcasts. So if there's any subject that interests you or anything you would like to hear an episode on, then just let me know. Send me an email at rnrhistorypod at gmail.com. I know you guys are listening. I can see the numbers. With your interaction, we can make this show a lot more fun. But okay, enough babbling. On with the show! Today's episode takes place Sunday, April 17th, 1960. Barry Gordy's Tamla Records had just been incorporated as Motown Records Corporation in Detroit, Michigan just three days prior. Candlestick Park, described by one source as the windiest, coldest, and most hated baseball stadium in the history of the game, opens in San Francisco, beginning a 40-season run as the home of the San Francisco Giants. U.S. Vice President Richard Nixon, who was also running for president at the time, threw out the first pitch at the first game. And of course, Elvis Presley had just finished his stint with the United States Army and had just recorded his hits, It's Now or Never, Fever, and Are You Lonesome Tonight at RCA Studios in Nashville, Tennessee. Our subject today is another one of those that I feel is often overlooked. Although quite popular, it seems to me, especially while doing my research on this episode, that this is one of those that is often left out of rock and roll conversations, which makes absolutely no sense to me. When we talk about rock and roll, I think at this point we all know the list. Chuck Berry, Elvis, Jerry Lee, and so on and so on. But for some reason, people always seem to forget to mention this guy. Our subject whom I'm speaking is none other than Eddie Cochran. Eddie Cochran is a paramount figure of rock and roll. He's basically Chuck Berry and Elvis rolled into one person. He was the original rocker. Like, mods versus rockers? Yeah, Eddie was who all those rocker kids aspired to be. He could sing. He could play guitar, he was good-looking, this kid really had it all going on. He was experimental with recording techniques, being one of the first to mess with multi-track recording and overdubbing. He was even one of the first to mix distortion into his sound, all things that would shape the way rock and roll and just straight-up music would be captured, documented, and recorded forever. He was highly influential, and I mean, come on, even I quote him in the beginning of every episode... But before we start talking about his career, let's rock and roll the clock back a bit to October 1938. And if you remember back in episode four of the show, Sister Rosetta Tharp was just about to record some of her first songs. But I digress. This story is about Eddie. So first, let's go back in time. Raymond Edward Eddie Cochran was born Monday, October 3, 1938, to Frank and Alice Cochran in Albert Lee, Minnesota. His parents were originally from Oklahoma City, but had to relocate up north due to the Depression. At a young age, Eddie started to show an interest in music, and once he got to middle school, he joined the school band. He first tried to play the trombone, but according to one source, Eddie's teacher informed his parents that he didn't have the lip for trombone, and suggested that he play the clarinet instead. Once Eddie saw the clarinet, and saw what it looked like, he quickly quit the band, and decides he wants to play the drums. But in order for Eddie to play the drums, he was told that he would first have to learn the piano as a prerequisite. So annoyed by this fact, he decides he would just take up the guitar instead. One of his older brothers had an old K brand guitar at home gathering dust, so after being shown a few chords on it, Eddie began strumming along with the country tunes that he loved to listen to on the radio. His mother was quoted as saying after this, he then acquired a chord book, and seemed to just take it naturally from there. So in 1951, Eddie is now 12, and the family decides to pack it up and move from cold Minnesota to nice and sunny California. They packed all their belongings up in two cars and were about to head out west, when a young Eddie approaches the car with his guitar, and his mother stops him in his tracks. She's quoted as saying, for pity's sake Eddie, with all the other odds and ends we have to carry, that guitar isn't a prized possession in this household. To which Eddie responds, possession mom, this guitar is my best friend. And a quick side note, uh, the site that I got this from has conflicting information and says that the family actually moved back to Oklahoma City before moving out west. But for the sake of the story, let's just stick with the legend on this one. So with his guitar in hand, 12 year old Eddie and his family pack up and head out west to Bell Gardens, California. Another quick side note, uh, I got four different sources here and each one says a different year for when they moved out west. Well two of them say 1951 and the others say 1952 and 1955. I'm guessing 1955 is wrong uh, and one of the sources that says 1951 is also where I'm getting all these quotes from so I'm going to stick with that one. So, upon arriving in Bell Gardens, Eddie is now the new kid in town and pretty much has no friends. So, he decides to spend most of his time with his best friend of all, the guitar, and he quickly begins to improve at the instrument. By September, 1951, Eddie befriends another student at the school named Connie Gaibo Smith. They had similar tastes in music, which quickly bonded them together as friends. Guybo was the upright bass player in the school band, and so naturally the two of them would jam together. In late 1953, they started a country music trio called the Melody Boys with another schoolmate named Al Garcia. Al played lead guitar, Guybo played steel guitar, and Eddie played rhythm guitar. They would frequently practice in the back room of their local music shop, the Bell Gardens Music Center. By 1954, Eddie would start high school. Instead of attending school, however, he would often just go around town and jam with other musicians and hang out at the music center. His playing was improving greatly at this time. He was largely influenced by country, western, guitar-playing extraordinaire Chet Atkins. This next section I'm just going to quote directly off from one of my sources, uh, which is eddiecochran.net. I can't figure out a better way to paraphrase it, so here it goes. Eddie was also very bright, and his natural curiosity drove him to research and experiment new sounds and techniques. His mother claims that everything came easily to him, that he was an honor student, and that there wasn't anything he couldn't play after hearing it once or twice. All his associates confirmed this last point. Chuck Foreman jammed with him in the early days and is quoted, When I met Eddie, he couldn't have been more than 15 or 16 years old. We were listening to a lot of jazz records in those days. I remember we had an old Johnny Smith, Royal Roos 78. Smith was playing a lot of triads and this really fascinated Eddie. He'd say, I wonder how in the hell he's doing that. And in no time at all, he was playing it. Eddie was very aware, very astute. He retained things. He was playing a lot of Chet Atkins and Joe Maffis. He could duplicate all those Maffis high-speed licks note for note very easily. There's some excellent home recordings from Chuck Foreman and Eddie playing around this time. I'll have it posted up on the website. The recordings were never meant for release, and they're just the two guys jamming out. I highly recommend listening to them because it gives you a little peek at his guitar playing at this point in time. So now Eddie and his band would play parties and various gigs around town, most frequently at the Bell Gardens American Legion Hall, which is still there today. The American Legion Hall was a pretty popular venue at this time. In October 1954, Eddie attends a show there to see a band called Richard Kay and the Shamrock Valley Boys. Between sets, Eddie asked the band if he could join them on stage for a few songs, earning him the respect of the band's rhythm guitarist, Bob Bull. After the show, Bob Bull asked Eddie if he was related to a guy named Hank Cochran, who had recently done a gig with them earlier. Eddie had no clue who this Hank was, despite sharing the same last name. Bob Bull would then arrange for the two Cochrans to meet up. Eddie then meets Hank Cochran. Hank Cochran was a singer, songwriter, semi-professional musician who would hitchhike around the country. And actually, while researching this episode, I realized I might even have to do one on him. The guy's got a really cool story and would even go on to write uh, some famous hit songs, including I Fall to Pieces and She's Got You for Patsy Cline. So now it's January 1955. Eddie Cochran and Hank Cochran are friends, and Hank offers Eddie a job to be his guitar player. Eddie accepts the job and just a few months after his 16th birthday, decides to drop out of high school and pursue a career in the music business. The two would name themselves the Cochran Brothers and began performing on the road. They quickly gained popularity on the West Coast country music circuit. Their success would land them a record deal with a small independent record label, Echo Records, located at 4949 Hollywood Boulevard. With Echo, they would release a single called Mr. Fiddle, which was backed with two singing stars as the B-side. By fall of 1955, the Cochran brothers were scheduled to appear at the Big D Jamboree in Dallas, Texas. The Big D was Dallas's version of Nashville's Grand Ole Opry. During this time, Elvis was also making the rounds, and he played the Big D stage shortly before the Cochran brothers. Upon witnessing the effect Elvis was having, Hank is quoted as saying that he and Eddie knew right then that this new stuff was about to happen. Of course, the new stuff he's referring to is the early stirrings of rock and roll. After the Big D, they return home to Bell Gardens. One day shortly after this, while hanging out at the music center, Eddie is introduced by the store owner to a man named Jerry Capehart. Jerry Capehart was a singer-songwriter in his own right, but he wasn't having much success as a singer, and was hoping to find a group to demo his songs for him. For a small fee, Eddie agrees to demo the songs with the Cochran brothers, and a partnership is born. Going into 1956, the Cochran brothers would continue to play. During this time, they would even have multiple television appearances. Capehart and the Cochran's had been writing songs together now, and on April 4th, 1956, they went into the famous Gold Star Studios in Hollywood to lay down some demos. It was during this session that they started to drift away from their country roots and started to have a more rockabilly sound. While the demos weren't great, it definitely had hints of what was to come. Due to the success of Elvis, things were becoming more and more influenced by rock and roll. Jerry Capehart knew this and was trying to steer the Cochran brothers into that direction with his songwriting. The trio had a couple singles put out. Their first song, titled Walking Stick Boogie, appeared on the Cash Record label and was put out under the name Jerry Part, featuring the Cochrane Brothers. Back on Echo Records, they released Tired and Sleepy, backed with Fool's Paradise, put out as just the Cochrane Brothers. Hank didn't like this new direction, however, and although he tried to get into it at first, he knew that this rock and roll music wasn't for him. He then decides to part ways and head off to Nashville to focus on his country music. It was obvious to everyone that if record labels were gonna come around looking for the next Elvis, it would be the handsome 17-year-old guitar slinger Eddie Cochran getting the call. So now Eddie's going solo, and Capehart is acting as Cochran's co-writer, producer, and manager. In hopes of getting Eddie picked up as the next Elvis, the duo decides that they need some new, fresh demos. So Eddie calls up his old buddy, Guybo, to come play the stand-up bass on the session, while Capehart smacked on milk cartons tacked as the drums. During this session, they would spend hours in the studio overdubbing. They got comfortable working in the studio and mastered various different recording techniques. From this session, they ended up demoing songs like Skinny Jim and 20 Flight Rock. Skinny Jim got picked up as a single and was released by Crest Records. This release gave Eddie and K-Part a boost in confidence. They now knew that they were onto something. So with this newfound confidence, K-Part hits the town armed with 20 Flight Rock and three other demos, and goes off looking for a record deal. As Kate part was shopping around their new demos around town, uh, Eddie began picking up work as a session musician to supplement his income. As he was working on one job adding background music to the low-budget film, he was spotted by a producer, Boris Petrov, who, intrigued with Eddie's appearance, asked him if he would be interested in appearing in one of his movies. Eddie, who thought Petrov was joking, laughingly agrees. At the same time, a new record label was starting up called Liberty Records. They just recently had a hit with actress Julie London doing her rendition of the jazzy blues ballad Cry Me a River, but they were looking to break into the rock and roll craze. Part knew that he found a label looking for their Elvis and was ready to pounce. Before Capehart could even finish pitching his Eddie Cochran vision to the execs, they were already sold, and once they met Eddie in person, they were even more amazed by his dashing good looks and musical talent. They knew what they had on their hands, and the deal was sealed. The very next day, Eddie receives a call from Boris Petrov. Uh, he said he liked their demo of 20 Flight Rock and he wanted Eddie to appear in one of his films performing the song. Eddie and Capehart couldn't believe it. In a span of about a week, they went from recording demos to now having a record deal and a movie deal to boot. After this, Eddie Cochran, Jerry Capehart, and Connie Guybo-Smith go back into the studio and record studio versions of 20 Flight Rock and Dark and Lonely Street. On August 14, 1956, Cochran Films' his cameo appearance at Fox Studios for the movie The Girl Can't Help It. Other cameos in the movie would include Little Richard, Fats Domino, and Gene Vincent. The film was released December 1st, 1956, a whole year before Elvis's Jailhouse Rock. The film had an enormous impact on teenagers at the time, and kick-started the rock and roll craze around the world. John Lennon, who was 16 at the time, said it was the first time he got to see his rock and roll stars that he worshipped as living human beings. It would push him to pursue his own rock and roll dream. Six months later, after performing with his skiffle group, The Quarrymen, Lennon would be introduced to Paul McCartney. Paul, wanting to impress Lennon, picks up a guitar and plays 20 flight rock for John. John was actually impressed by this and then invites Paul to join his band, thus giving birth to the Beatles. Yes, you heard that correctly. 20 Flight Rock gave birth to the Beatles. The Beatles. Let's just take a moment to appreciate that. So back to the story. While The Girl Can't Help It was being screened around the world, Liberty Records decides to shelf 20 Flight Rock for the time being and instead pushes Eddie into recording a pre-written ballad called Sitting in the Balcony, which becomes his first hit. The song would launch him to stardom, and he would be featured singing it in another cameo in a movie called Untamed Youth. Within a year, Eddie went from being virtually unknown to being a well-known face. Because of this, he would go on to tour the States and Australia with Little Richard, the Everly Brothers, and Gene Vincent. Upon arriving back home, Eddie and Jerry Capehart were now faced with dealing with the dreaded follow-up single. With help from a friend named Johnny Russell, they write and release a song called One Kiss, which was a disastrous flop. They released four more singles after this, and they all flopped. Although Cochran was getting his studio time in and making public appearances, they needed another hit to keep the train running. It was looking grim for the guys until March 28, 1958 in a recording session at Gold Star Studios, armed with good old Guy Bo on bass and a session musician Earl Palmer of Wrecking Crew fame on drums. They write and record a song in 45 minutes called Summertime Blues. Summertime Blues was originally released as a B-side to a song called Love Again. Although they looked at the song as being like a one-off and they slapped it on as a B-side, the song quickly caught on and it launched Eddie back to the top of the charts. They couldn't believe a song they were joking around with could be so popular. It even has Eddie doing a bad impression of a character named Kingfish from the show Amos and Andy during the verses. That's that low voice that you hear him doing. Also during this time is when Eddie began dating a young 18-year-old Sharon Sheely. Sharon Cheeley was a songwriter from Newport Beach, California, who just wrote a massive hit for Ricky Nelson called Poor Little Fool. It's rumored that she's one of the hands clapping along in the recording of Summertime Blues. After Summertime Blues, their success would continue, and they would have a string of hits that would keep Eddie on the top of the charts. These songs include Come On Everybody, Something Else, My Way, Weekend, and Nervous Breakdown. Yeah, these songs are known as rock and roll standards today, or at least they should be. If you haven't heard these songs, I urge you to take time out of your day and sit down and listen to them. They're all great songs, and they've been extremely influential for musicians from Paul McCartney to Sid Vicious to the Beach Boys, The Who, Led Zeppelin, White Stripes. I could go on and on. Just listen to the songs. You won't regret it. After this resurgence of success, Eddie would go on to tour the United States extensively and would have some more television appearances. By 1960, he would then be invited to join a leather-clad Jean Vincent on tour throughout England. On January 16th, Eddie flies out to England to make a few public appearances and to practice with a backing band for the tour. The first show Eddie would play with Vincent was on January 24th. His girlfriend, and now unofficial fiancée Sharon Shealy, would fly out a few days later to join them. The tour was a success, and they were enjoying all the attention and fame. Eddie was described at this time by a man named Peter Jameson from the Manchester Hippodrome. He says, His singing was strong, gritty, and powerful, just like the records, his guitar playing superb, flowing through his arms and into his guitar. His fingers seemed to glide over the instrument as he sang and played. He was up on his toes, all the while playing the most driving rock imaginable. Throughout his act, there was pandemonium screaming and cheering with the audience on their feet from start to finish an unforgettable tour de force by this incredible artist. This 10-week tour was a hit and would have a great impact on British pop music, an influence that still lasts to this day. It's even said that a young George Harrison would follow the tour around so he could watch and learn how to play guitar just like Eddie Cochran. About a year earlier to this tour was the infamous incident now known as The Day The Music Died. This was the famous plane crash that took the lives of Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the big bopper J.P. Richardson. These guys were friends at Eddie's, and it deeply affected him. He was haunted by the tragic event, and he would have frequent nightmares that he too would have a similar fate and be taken in an accident far too soon. Between the nightmares, Eddie began feeling quite homesick, and he couldn't wait for the tour to end so he could go back home. He wanted to stay home and spend time in the studio rather than put his life at risk on the road. On Saturday, April sixteenth, 1960, the last day of tour, the tour manager puts an envelope with plane tickets on Eddie's hotel room bed. Eddie quickly grabs the envelope, rips it open, and exclaims, Take a look at these, boy. Real genuine tickets to the USA. He just couldn't wait to get back home. After their last show, Eddie, Sharon, and Gene Vincent were supposed to take a train to the airport and finally fly home. They opted to take a cab instead since they figured it would be far more comfortable and quicker since the airport was about 100 miles away. At about 11 p.m., they got in a cab and headed to the airport. The cab hurtled through the dark night at 70 miles per hour, winding its way through the series of small towns. At around 11.50 p.m., they reached the outskirts of Chippenham, a small town 20 miles from Bristol. After passing under a bridge, the car had to negotiate a gradual curve up a road leading to a gentle uphill gradient called Roden Lane, which has recently been re-graveled. The driver misjudged the curve of the road and lost control. The cab hit a curb with its brakes locked. The impact spun the car around and it went skidding and bouncing around, eventually slamming into a lamppost. The impact snapped the rear left roof support away from the body and badly buckled the left rear panel, which had a perfect imprint of the lamppost on it. Cochrane had been thrown upwards against the roof of the car by the force of the crash, then propelled onto the road as the door burst open on contact. Vincent sustained a broken collarbone while Shealy received back injuries. The driver escaped unscathed. The injured passengers were rushed to St. Martin's Hospital where they would be treated by emergency staff. Cochran never regained consciousness and died of severe brain lacerations at 4pm on Easter Sunday, just 16 hours after the crash. Although his death made headlines in England, his news received only minor coverage in the United States. Three days after this, Gene Vincent discharged himself from the hospital and flew back to Los Angeles with Cochran's body. He's quoted as saying, Eddie and I started together and we're coming home together. Eddie Cochran was buried at Forest Lawn Cemetery in Cypress, California on Monday, April 25th, 1960. Ironically, his single, which was just released one month earlier, was climbing the charts. The song was called Three Steps to Heaven. Eddie Cochran's story is a sad one and one that adds to the mythology of rock and roll and is another one of those unfortunately classic and heartbreaking rock and roll stories of an inspiring young musician taken from us far too soon. Despite this, his influence is lasting. His innovative recording techniques and guitar playing, singing and songwriting inspired many great musicians that came after him. I mean, I think the Beatles alone is an argument enough for how important Eddie truly was. Jerry K. Part was quoted in 1991 as saying Eddie was one of those innovators of rock and roll that set the standard that people are still trying to achieve and it's true even today Eddie's influence is still here while he may be gone, he will never be forgotten sure yeah, seems like. Heaven. So that concludes another episode of Rock and Roll History. Thank you so much for listening. And please remember to wash your hands with this virus going around. At least there will be more episodes. But in the meantime, guys, just remember to keep on rocking and rolling.